0: Hi there Duncan Green here with another roundup of the week's posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm absolutely knackered because um, we're now full into teaching term and I have these 50 plus super smart students probing and questioning and discussing activism and it's absolutely great, totally involving but by the end of Friday I'm just kind of and I'm recording this on Friday afternoon just as I've got home um, and it'll come out to you on Saturday morning. And uh, I hope I can string a couple of sentences together. But it is the best time of year in terms of the teaching, but also it's pretty full on. Back to the blog. So, <clears throat> um, links I liked, um, lots of good things this week, but one I'll pick out is um, this whole question of whether there's another debt crisis on the way. You know, for people of my generation, there were formative moments which involved international debt crises. There was the Latin America debt crisis of the 1980s. There was the Jubilee 2000 movement of uh, around 2000. Surprise, surprise. There was the um, Asian financial crisis of 1998. And Laurie Lee, formerly of, uh, or, uh, of Care and also a former um, sort of big cheese in Whitehall in the British government. Reckons there's another debt crisis on the way. A lot of the numbers seem to bear him out. The difference this time and this is a debt crisis of poor countries who've got uh, got into big debt and are now suddenly finding their the interest rates soaring and the repayments soaring and it's it's destroying their budgets. The difference this time is it's much more complicated. So there's a graph I stuck up there which shows just how much money is owed to private debtors, Um, whereas in the Jubilee 2000 days, yeah, people owed it to the big Western countries and the multilateral organizations like the World Bank and the IMF and the, and the regional development uh, banks like the you know, uh, Asian Development Bank. So in a sense, it was easier to get people in a room and uh, negotiate. Now it's much harder. So it's looking very messy indeed, this whole question of debt. Second post, uh, I had a little muse on my field trips and this was prompted by being sent a video which somebody made of me in my recent trip to Papua New Guinea. Um, it was commissioned by The Voice Inc, which is one of the partner organisations for the Building Community Engagement in Papua New Guinea (BCEP) program I'm working with there. Um, and I've never been the, the, the subject of such a slick professional film. I showed it to my wife, Kathy, and she said she had to stop watching because she was nauseated by it because it makes me out to be some kind of hero. Um, but it also got me thinking about field trips and how they've changed for me over the years. So here's what I wrote. I'm talking here about the visit to a developing country from someone from head office in the north, partly to support national staff but also to educate the HQ person in the realities of politics and doing aid on the ground. Even ten years ago I used to insist on getting out of the bubble during a trip, sitting under the tree and interacting with local communities. I used to ask my fellow aid wonks back home in the UK, rather sanctimoniously, when did you last talk to a poor person, excluding domestic workers and drivers, and watch their faces fall? Now, for personal, institutional and political reasons, I've pretty much stopped doing that. On a personal level, I seem to be always in a rush and no longer have the stomach or the spine for the six-hour jolting ride out to visit a community. That tends to limit my conversations to the capital. But institutionally, one of the changes in Oxfam is that I can't just rock up and ask our country office to organise a trip for me. I have to be invited, and often those in charge understandably think that there are better uses of their time and resources. Even if I do get invited, sending me off to sit under trees is not usually a high priority for them. They want me to interact with staff, academics, partners, or government officials. And finally, there's the politics. I don't think I'd thought very deeply. About what was going on under those trees. Sure, I recognise there were power imbalances that skewed the conversation, but I believe the right combination of listening skills, curiosity, humour, and self deprecation could overcome them. I, brackets, white privileged man backed by aid money, could somehow have an open conversation with those farmers under the tree. I no longer believe that. The power imbalances are just too deeply rooted. that search for authenticity now looks like a bit of a vanity project to be honest. Probably better to ask local staff and researchers to interact with those communities and then ask them what they find out. They understand far more about what is going on and are much more likely to establish a conversation based on trust than some random white bloke rocking up in a 4x4. Local intermediaries can also act as a bridge able to explain what is going on to me in ways that I can understand. which go deeper than my ill-informed questions. They may well have personal experience of of some of the issues we are working on, gender-based violence, abuses at the hands of authorities and and so on. So now my field trip is usually actually an office trip but still I do miss those conversations, some of which provided key personal inspirational and light bulb moments, not least for the book How Change Happens the fishing communities in Tikumgar, the indigenous land uh, struggle in Chiquitania in Bolivia, while others just kept me motivated and inspired by the energy of grassroots struggles for change. There is no substitute for the impact of those first-hand conversations, and I worry that without those big mind-shift moments, I'll just be stuck on repeat. I realise I'm speaking from the extreme end of the fly-in-fly-out versus long-term resident spectrum here, Other internationals, whether from the north or other countries in the south, live in country for long periods and acquire in-depth knowledge and relationships of trust. Apart from a couple of years in Latin America as a young man, I've always had to rely on short visits to a bewildering number of countries, seeking as good an immersion in each as I could manage. Has this shift happened for other readers? And actually, a lot of people chimed in on this. It was one of those posts which prompted a couple of dozen comments really good ones um, and uh, you know some people sharing it some people saying no that's not what's happened to me and that's when a blog is really good I think when it when it gets a conversation going. Next post, nine useful roles INGOs can play as intermediaries in an age of localization and this was a paper from Peace Direct, really good organization um, discussing as they seek to localize or step back from direct implementation what are these intermediary roles that they might um, uh, uh, find. It's a very short paper anyway but I cut it down a bit Um, and they identify nine functions. So they start off in recent years there has been growing scrutiny of the largely unchanged role that INGOs have played in humanitarian development and peace building efforts. This scrutiny includes the push towards greater localization systems change processes that aim to shift power towards more locally led development and global discussions around how to decolonize the sector. So the nine things that Peace direct the nine, nine roles that Peace Direct identify are one interpreter. Donors and policymakers often publish statements and policies that are inaccessible and couched in jargon. This makes it difficult for local actors to interpret what they mean. Intermediaries can play a useful role in translating these policies to be more accessible. Second role, knowledge broker and producer. While the expertise needed to tackle complex humanitarian challenges is often found locally, there is also a wealth of knowledge and expertise elsewhere. It is found in the practice, research and insights generated by activists, communities and organizations all over the world. Yet local actors rarely have the time or resources to locate this knowledge and use it effectively. Intermediaries can play a useful role in bridging this gap. Trainer, coacher and co-learner. Local actors argue that INGOs, international NGOs, use the argument that local groups have low capacity to justify their own plans, which results in them directly implementing activities not working with local partners. When local partners are included, NGOs often justify their role as technical experts even when this is really not necessary. While local organizations are rightly very critical of the problematic framing of capacity building, I hate that phrase, they also acknowledge that there are skills that they're keen to develop and strengthen and that they're keen to learn from others. Intermediaries can plug this gap by providing training and coaching where necessary, big caveat, For example, training in donor reporting, advocacy and campaigns, or strategic planning. Next role, convener. Opportunities for collective reflection and learning among civil society actors are extremely limited. Shrinking civic space, increasing competition and suspicion among local actors means that there are few opportunities to bring local groups together. In addition, the current system of funding for CSOs often pits local organisations against each other which reinforces competition rather than collaboration. As a result, local groups rarely have the opportunity to strategize together, so intermediaries can play that convening role. Next, connector and ecosystem builder. Civil society in most Global South countries can be characterized as suffering from horizontal and vertical fragmentation. Horizontal fragmentation happens when local groups cannot connect with one another to learn and work together they've already talked about really. Vertical fragmentation happens when local groups cannot connect to national and international organizations and processes. Intermediaries can help bridge both these divides. Next role, advocate and amplifier. One of the most impactful roles an intermediary can play is to use its power to advocate to policymakers on behalf of local actors or create space for local actors to advocate directly and ensure that local organizations receive a profile, credit and a platform for their work and achievements. Next role, watchdog. In countries around the world, space for civil society to operate freely is declining. Civil society organizations, campaigners and leaders are facing increasingly repressive policies and actions by their own governments. Intermediaries can play a role as watchdogs. Next, critical friend. Many INGOs consider local actors as implementing partners and treat them like subcontractors. But very few local actors want to be treated this way, but they feel they have no choice. What they want are long-term partnerships based on mutual respect, trust, and flexibility. And Peace Direct has grown to understand that the role of the intermediary as a critical friend is highly valued. And this is a term that's used an increasing amount. It's It's how my job description with the work I do in Papua New Guinea is actually, I'm actually on the budget as a critical friend. And it means you come in you know, without being the boss, without being the guru or the expert, you're just sort of a friendly voice with experiences from outside in, an, in a respectful conversation. I, I love it, it's a great role. Finally, sidekick. The least known role for intermediaries is being the sidekick for local partners. By sidekick, we mean a subordinate role. One that supports the local organization in whatever it needs, but doesn't overstep the support role. And I like this one. And, and you know, one way you could do that is by giving the money to the local organization and say, OK, if you, you know, pay us, if you think um, yeah, we, can, we can help, you've got the money, hire us in and then we'll be, uh, yeah, we'll be beholden to you, not the other way around. So I think there's some ways around that which can which can strengthen. And there is something called the Sidekick Manifesto, which Peace Direct says is a good example of how INGOs can conceptualize this commitment. And I've linked to that in the blog. Final post of the week, a book review. Hypocrisy and human rights, resisting accountability for mass atrocities. What is the point of all the noise on human rights violations? All that speaking truth to power to repressive regimes who don't listen. If no one is ever brought to justice. When all those lawyers, amnesty reports, email campaigns and UN treaties simply bounce off the brute realities of national power. This book is by Kate Cronin-Furman and it uses a political economy lens to understand what is going on using lack of accountability for mass atrocities as a particularly grim entry point. She writes really well so there's no need to rephrase. From the intro This is a book about what human rights pressure does when it doesn't work. Repressive states with absolutely no intention of complying with their human rights obligations often change course dramatically in response to international pressure. They create toothless commissions, permit but then obstruct international observers' visits and pass showpiece legislation while simultaneously bolstering their repressive capacity. So she's a human rights lawyer, activist turned scholar. She teaches political science at University College London, and she's got some extraordinary real life examples from Darfur to Sri Lanka to the Rohingya Myanmar. Her conclusion, external pressure will never convince perpetrator regimes to prosecute their own, never. Absent the threat of invasion, the stakes of international opprobrium cannot compete with the stakes of domestic politics. Under heavy international pressure, the most perpetrator regimes will do is to create quasi-compliant institutions. But that doesn't mean naming and shaming tactics or unrealistic absolutist advocacy positions have no value. It's true they won't materially affect perpetrator regimes disincentives to provide justice for mass atrocities. However, they can have powerful demonstration effects. The value of making unrealistic demands becomes clear when we can consider the consequences of not making them. Take the dilemma activists face in 2017-18 over whether to push for a Security Council referral of the Rohingya crisis to the ICC, International Criminal Court. Critics of the approach rightly pointed out that it was a non-starter, given China's support for Burma and Russia's statements that it would veto any future ICC referrals. Even if one did miraculously pass, they added, it would be toothless and unlikely to materially increase the chances of prosecution of those most responsible for atrocities against the Rohingya. But however flawed a prospect it is, UN Security Council action is the primary mechanism that exists for pursuing accountability for atrocities committed by non-ICC member states. Failing to pursue the option was signaling to the Rohingya victims of Burmese atrocities that their suffering is less worthy of international concern than that of victims in Darfur, Syria, or Libya. Not only that, but abandoning the effort to get such an obviously qualifying case, one of truly horrific atrocities bearing the hallmarks of genocide to the ICC, would have downstream effects potentially further undermining an already deficient and poorly entrenched system. So it's a really well-argued book. Uh, It sort of reminded me of Churchill's, that famous Churchill phrase, you know, democracy is the worst possible system apart from every other system and Kate is basically arguing the same thing about the international uh, humanitarian law approach to prosecuting mass atrocities Uh, if you are in the humanitarian field I urge you to uh, have a read so I'm going to stop there it's a bit short this week I think um, because um, the pieces were fairly short but have a great weekend and I'll be back next week hopefully with a bit more energy and some more content from, from Poverty to Power Have a great time. Bye.